rights. I am so excited for you all to listen to this episode of Forward Thinking Founders. Before we get started, I just wanted to let you know that we are officially starting an email list as we have some big plans for the podcast and we'll be telling people on the email list first and probably only the people on the email list. So feel free to sign up and get on the email list at f20r.com. It's F as in Frank, 20R as in red.com. And I'll see you over there. How is it going, everyone? Welcome to another episode of Forward Thinking Founders, where we're talking to founders about their companies, their visions for the future, and how the two collide. Today, I'm very excited to be talking to Francoise Baldassari, who is the CEO and creator of MemFault. Welcome to the show. How is it going? Thanks. I'm thrilled to be here. Yeah, I'm excited to have you on. I remember... I, I learned about you a couple of days on Twitter, and I checked out what you were working on. I thought it was pretty cool, and I'm looking forward to learning more. And with that, let's just get right into it. Can you tell us about what you're working on? Yeah, so Memfault is building dev tools for hardware companies. So today, if you're a mobile engineer, you know, you're using New Relic, you're using uh, things like Hockey App, Test Flights. You have tons of tools to make your software uh, quickly without building anything broken. Hardware teams have none of that. So oftentimes, before they can even build an application, they have to build an operating system, they have to build a logging solution, they have to build a monitoring solution. Um, so we're providing those, those tools turnkey as opposed to having all these different companies build it from scratch. Okay, so I want to preface with I am not the most technical person in the world, so I might ask some basic questions, but I also know that some of the listeners are also in the same goal, so roll with me for a, a second. So, you got it. So ultimately, um, as you mentioned, there are tons of tools to help track software, um, software bugs and whatnot, but there, there aren't so many with, with firmware or, or hardware. Can you dive into an example of a piece of hardware or a product that uses, your, that, uh, that uses Memfault and how Memfault kind of catches it and what happens once it's caught? How, does it, how it notifies uh, the, the product owners? Yeah, so I, I won't talk about a specific customer only because I haven't checked with them that they're, they're okay being mentioned. But what, what I'll tell you is, I worked at a company called Pebble for a long time, smartwatch company. And so Pebble it was a smartwatch connected over Bluetooth, and it had all kinds of interactive features that, uh, that uh, customers grew to love. But when we started working at Memfault, if somebody ran into an issue, we didn't find out about it until they called us or sent us an email. That meant if the watch wasn't connected to their phone, or if it was crashing, or if, if it wasn't turning on, we, we, we wouldn't know until they gave us a call. And so you can imagine that that's an extremely slow process. You have to pay customer support people who have to, you know, like pull the information out of the person's kind of brain and, and understand what's going on. Um, and the other problem that you have is you don't have any good understanding of, of kind of how often things happen in the field because each customer interaction is, is, is a singular event. So by using technology like Memfault, what you end up doing is automatically collecting diagnostics from all your devices, like a smartwatch, but it could also be a car, it could be a satellite, it could be a smartphone, any kind of connected device. You're pulling all this diagnostics information automatically, you're analy analyzing it and deduplicating it, 
which allows you to catch things before your customers start calling about it or start tweeting about it and potentially even issue a fix before anybody notices. Okay, this is, this is pretty interesting because as a consumer, I have you know, used several products that have uh, stopped working and I have to go through the, the process that you just mentioned. Um, so I have a few questions. As I said, they might be kind of noob questions, but I'm just curious. So let's say I, you know, I'll, I'll use an example of a product that I use that I, that I have really loved. Um, it's the, uh, my gosh, what's it called? It's the occipital, uh, the occipital uh, 3D sensor goggles. It's pretty much this really cool company out of Boulder that I, you know, I love them and they built a way to kind of track rooms and 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 walk in them in VR and all sorts of stuff I don't totally understand but love when I'm in it. <laughs> and they shipped uh, me a 3D sensor. So if there was something that was kind of went wrong with this sensor, are you saying that, that they would kind of get notified before I ever came across it? And then would it would they be able to potentially fix the problem from, from like remotely? Uh, and, and it kind of can you guys kind of dive into how that works? Yeah, exactly. So, you know, ultimately today, most companies have the ability to issue a firmware update. It's a pretty lightweight process at this point. And so if you can imagine a company like Occipital, when they find out your device is having an issue, you know, we also enable them to push updates to only a, a slice of their fleet. So they could say, hey, I'm going to push an update just to Matt's device to see if it fixed this problem. And they ship the update. You, you don't even notice something happened. And now your device is, is working properly. That's, that's the world we want to enable. You know who I wish you would have had as a customer a year ago? Tell Apple. Me. <laughs> <laughs> their uh, their uh, keyboards have been pretty, pretty fun to use, but um, they, luckily they just shipped some new, uh, some new product, and hopefully the keyboards are, are better. So. Well, obviously, we'd love to have Apple as a customer. They're, they're kind of the, the golden brand in the hardware space. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, well, actually, um, I, let's keep going down that path. So, do do big companies uh, like Apple or you know, let's say Fortune five hundred companies, do they also have a similar problem where when they when they ship products, they aren't able to know when something goes wrong until they have an incoming message? Yeah, absolutely. Most most large companies, most companies, large and small, have that problem now. You know, companies like Apple have built internal teams and built internal tools to tackle that problem to some extent. And they invested millions of dollars in building custom infrastructure and custom solutions to solve that problem. What we're saying is you don't have to spend millions of dollars, right? Like we can, it's a general solution. Everybody needs roughly the same thing. And so by building one solution, we can offer it for much cheaper than it would cost to build it yourself. I'd love to hear... Um, a little bit of the backstory and origin story of, uh, you know, when did you realize that this was a big enough problem that you wanted to solve it? And what was that moment when you decided to just start a startup to, to, to tackle the, the whole industry? Yeah, so as I was leaving Pebble, um, actually, I had a beer with my two co-founders. So this was in 2016. Um, I had a beer with the two of them and I said, you know, this diagnostic stuff that we built at Pebble to solve our needs, it's pretty powerful. I bet other people want it. And we had that conversation and we kind of started spitballing. Why don't we start, should we start or could we start a business around this? And for personal reasons, it's just, it, the timing wasn't right for us. And so I went to work at, at Oculus where I led the embedded software team and my, my co-founders 
um, went to work at Fitbit. You know, Fitbit acquired uh, um, Pebble uh, in, in 2016. And, uh, and then a couple of years later, so last year, basically, in 2018, we got another beer all together where we remained good friends. And we had what ended up being the exact same conversation, which was, nobody has done this yet. Why has nobody done this yet? We ended up building the same stuff at Fitbit. We ended up building the same stuff at Oculus. Everybody needs it. Why, why don't we just do it? Like if nobody's going to do it, we've got to do it. So in December, I gave a call to Eric Mijikowski. He's one of the partners at Y Combinator. He was also the founder of Pebble. So I knew him from my time there. And, uh, and, and at the end of the call, he just convinced me to apply to the batch at YC. It was December 19th. It was right before the holidays. Uh, the YC applications had been due months before. But we, turned, we sent an application anyways, and then a few days later, they invited us over for an interview. And at the end of the interview, they just told us that we were in, and we had to start the batch on the 2nd of January. So, you know, we went from like, oh, we're just talking about this, maybe it's time we do it, to all of a sudden, you know, we're quitting our job, we're starting YC, and, and we've got a business. So I'd like to dive into that week and a half uh, of, <laughs> of yeah. interview YC uh, starting. Um, so how, I'd like to just learn about your mindset. It was just an idea. It was just the kind of a project you were thinking about. Then all of a sudden someone was kind of giving you a shot. Can you give me an insight into your psyche into what happened and maybe like right after the interview after, yeah. you, after you heard you got in and then like how that changed as you prepared for, uh, for the accelerator? Yeah, so first I'll tell you that we'd been ruminating on this idea, it turns out, each of us, since that conversation in 2016. And so in our head, we'd done a lot of the kind of mental and emotional work to get to the point of starting the company. Um, but, but certainly the YC interview and admission kind of precipitated it and made it happen overnight, practically. Um, but the, the, the kind of thinking was really important. Um, when we got to the interview, I'll be honest with you, we didn't think we'd get in. Like... We, we, people spend weeks practicing and prepping and we'd had no time. We, you know, my co-founder, Chris, who lived in Boston, flew in Thursday night. I think we like chatted briefly about what the interview would be like and like looked at a couple mock, mock questions and we went to bed and we showed up completely unprepared the next day and we thought, you know what, it's going to be a good experience. And, uh, and we had the YC interview and, and, and to be honest, it felt really good. Like the questions they were asking were the ones that we thought were important and we had good answers to. And, and we clearly felt a, a, a very kind of good flow and a very good understanding with the interviewers. Um, and so, you know, we, walk, we walked out of the YC interview feeling good about ourselves, but, you know, not expecting anything beyond that. And as we're putting our coats on, Katz, who's one of the partners at YC, pokes her head out of the interview room and says, hey, can you guys come back in? And we walked back in and I said, so you guys are in the batch. It starts January 2. Do you guys want to call your boss and quit your job right now? Uh, in front of us. And of course, we thought, we, I think we told them, hey, this is something you need to do in person. Like We can't just you know, uh, call them on the spot. So we didn't. And I remember we walked out of the YC interview and Chris, my co-founder, who, by the way, I've worked at multiple jobs with and went to college with, was just white as a sheet, you know, completely freaked out that his life had just gotten appended. He had to quit. He had to move to California for YC. He, had pre he was prepared for none of it. And um, I told him, Let's, I'll call an Uber. We'll go back to my place. And he said, no, I think we need to walk. <laughs> so we start walking. 
and there's a we walk by a bar you may know it it's called tempest it's in san francisco it's like a dive bar you know cheap beers and i think we had two shots of whiskey before chris started talking about the fact that he had to quit his job and and you know from there on out it we just kind of went into go mode and we called all our bosses the next day we quit our jobs and we started planning the move you know i had to convince my partner that chris was going to live with us for three months uh, we find some office space, um, and uh, and and starting in January, you know, we had no code, we had no customers. All we had was a good network, having worked in the industry for a while, and a good idea. Um, and so the very first day is very weird when you leave your your you know job at a big company and sit down in an empty office with your laptop, and then we just started making a list of all the things we had to do and doing them one at a time. And soon enough, you had a routine. So this is incredible. I I actually uh, don't I don't have an experience that's that's super far off that happened earlier this year. I um and I want to share it because I because it's going to lead to a question. I uh, was a call-in guest on uh, the end of or beginning of January of this year on Jason Calacanis's This Week in Startups, and you know I was talking about you know my company and whatever. And uh, he said, oh, you should, you know, come, come to the accelerator, you know, and so I interviewed him and then I like went through the process and like from one, like w a month before I got in or we got in, I didn't even know the accelerator was a thing. And then a month later I was in San Francisco for three months and it, it, it took me, it took me for, for a loop, but it does something to your mindset to be out there in SF and to be on your thing full time. And, you know, we made, you know, that, that, that experience was incredible for us, but I'm kind of curious to learn for you, you went into this and you started this with, with nothing other than a lot of mind work and an idea. Um, what was the three months in Y Combinator like? And, and if you don't mind me asking kind of, What'd you get done in that three months to kind of output on demo day? I'd love to hear about kind of the speed in which you had to execute to be able to raise money so you can pay yourself. Right. So um, first, speaking of paying ourselves, we had made a deal that we would not draw a salary for the first year up to a year unless we raised money. So there was a real, you know, desire to raise some money at some point. But, but because we'd worked in the tech industry for a while, we were pretty comfortable. Um, speaking of YC, so I would say that we worked at a, very quick pace um, in, 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 and counterintuitively the, the biggest chunk of the work or the, the, the most important part of the work wasn't building the product it was really selling it so we met with Eric the partner at YC I think the second week of the program and we told him we're building the product and we're heads down and we're going to have it out the door soon and he told us to like stop coding and start selling and so with no products we started emailing a bunch of people and trying to get anyone to buy it kind of sight unseen with maybe a couple screenshots. And we did. We managed to sell it to a company, I think, three weeks into YC. We got somebody to buy it, which was nuts. They, you know, it didn't work. It didn't do anything. They kind of did it, uh, I think, partly as a favor, partly because they, they had the need genuinely. Um, and, uh, and, and so then we started furiously working. I think Chris was working nights and weekends through like getting those, that customer what they had bought. Uh, and then the second one and then the third one. And by the time we, we uh, got to demo day, you know, we had about five companies signed up and, you know, two of them were already using the products. 
the product was live. We were, you know, starting to have a, a kind of a set of functionality that was close to an MVP, uh, and we're getting customer feedback that was very positive. And so that actually turned out to be a very strong uh, hands on Demo Day. Well, congratulations on, on all of that. And it all, all comes, obviously, from a lot of hard work. So, so that's incredible. I want to dive into um, the, the reaction from the advice from, from the YC founders. They said, stop, stop building and get out of the, uh, the building and, and, and sell. Uh, I'm curious, how do you think about, how did you think about distribution when you just needed a couple of customers? And how has that changed over time, although it hasn't been so, so much, you know, so long between the two, but how do you think about distribution now? Yeah, so at the beginning of YC, it was very clear in my head that we were going to want to go bottom up and do a lot of content marketing, perhaps a little bit of advertising and just get individual developers to sign up for our products. And, and that turned out to be wrong, at least in the near term. Like it turned out that with a standard or traditional enterprise sales process, hunting companies, meeting their leadership, selling the product from the top down, there was a very healthy way to grow our business, at least in the near term. And so all of our plans, which, which were geared towards launching the self-serve product, sometimes at the end of the spring, we actually threw out the window and instead we focused on building kind of more advanced functionality and servicing bigger enterprise customers. We still hope to do the self-serve product sooner or later. It's just that uh, we, we, we actually found out that our go-to-market was working fine by just interacting with people one-on-one. -on -one. I also feel like that, you know, the contracts are going to be bigger, which gives you better margins to, you know, invest back into whatever you want to invest to. Which, exactly. Which makes sense. Cool. Well, I'm going to shift the conversation a little bit from, from the, the past and the present and what you're working on to what direction you're, you're going in and what the future looks like. I'd love to hear kind of the the product vision and let's say we can go as far out as like a decade or two what direction are you going in where would you like to where would you like to see your product in in a couple uh a couple of years yeah i think we have a pretty clear vision for the the next kind of two to five years um to me the the current you know what i let's call it application performance monitoring products that we have which allows hardware company to monitor the performance and errors on their devices it's just the beginning in reality software engineers who work on hardware products have the exact same need as the ones working on mobile apps and so they're going to need a b testing they're going to need logging they're going to need analytics they're going to need you know feature flags all of the the the, the things that software engineers have grown to, to use and love in other contexts. And so I can, I can see that we're going to be building, you know, this software engineering suites over the years. Additionally, we'll need to broaden the set of devices that we can work with. So, you know, I, we'll, we'll want to get into regulated verticals like medical devices, automotive. That will take a major engineering investment because those customers will have specific needs uh, and there'll be regulation to contend with. Last but not least, I think uh, uh, if you think about the much longer term, um, we, we, we think there's a very important play in security. So I'm just like being able to, to secure devices and provide kind of threat analysis live, as well as kind of end-to-end -end device lifecycle. So following a device from manufacturing and integrated in the factory all the way to decommissioning of the device and understanding its performance over time and how the performance ties back to manufacturing data and, uh, and kind of building an entire uh, 
uh, a vision and platform for device lifecycle management. That's awesome. I, I love to hear about the direction that it's going in. Uh, so, so it sounds like so far you had you had quite a career, and uh, it's kind of culminating into into this, right? And and what what this could be. I'd uh, be interested to hear what are some of the biggest learnings that you've had in your career. It could be from this company. It could be from previous companies. Um, but like throughout your time, uh, you know, doing doing tech stuff, uh, what have you learned? And of that, what are you applying to what you're doing now? Yeah. So one thing I've learned is that everything is software. So you know, if you if you take if you're a little bit removed from uh, the hardware industry, you may see it as something that's distinct from the software industry. Um, but in reality, in 2019, most businesses are transforming into software businesses. And so if you look at car companies like Tesla, they employ thousands, hundreds or thousands of software engineers. You look at Fitbit, they, they employ hundreds of software engineers. Like All of these companies are actually software companies, and the hardware is just a means to an end. And so when everything is software, you know, the methods of software apply and, and kind of the, the, the business models align. So for example, um, increasingly you see hardware companies are selling services or they're selling subscriptions, right? Like think about Peloton, for example, who sells fitness subscriptions. They don't really sell bikes. Bikes are a means to an end, right? And so that has really been the, 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 the arc of my career and one of the big learnings early on. When I started at Sun Microsystems, um, firmware was different from software. It was, you worked in the hardware organization, you worked in the lab, you had an oscilloscope on your bench. In t but, but at Pebble, I realized that I was just a software engineer, exactly like the folks who built websites. And I knew the same things. I could, I more or less used the same tools of the trade and, 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 uh, and the things that I needed and were, was gonna need in the future were the same. And so that learning, I think, has driven my career to where it is today, which is building these tools to make these people just as productive as all the other types of software engineers out there. That's awesome. I really like that and, and totally agree. Uh, so a couple more questions for you. Uh, so there are tons of people listening who... Yeah, kind of. They listen to you, and they listen to these conversations, and they they earn to start something of their own. They they want to be able to get into YC, or at least just start a company and get a customer, right? They 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 want to solve a problem, build a product, but they don't really know the best way to do that or how to get started. What would you say is the kind of the the best way for someone to to get started building a company? Yeah, this is going to sound very bad, um, but I would say that the easiest way to start a company is to do it. In other words, um, I think there are too many people who think they want to start a company and just don't know where to start, and so they never do. They're afraid. They're not sure they can do it, um, and I think that, you know, if you can stomach the risk, right? Like if you have a little bit of savings so that you can pay rent for a few months or, and you can pay for food for a few months, um, I think that it, it turns out that it's really not that big a risk to take to just go full time, do the thing, 
spend a couple months on it, pretty quickly you'll see whether it's going somewhere or not. And, and so my advice to everyone is stop doing the nights and weekend thing. Like save a little bit of money and, 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 and just do it. I Usually I just move on to the next question, but you said something in there that it, I've never heard it before from someone on, on the show. You said go full-time, you'll know within a couple of months if, it, if it's a, a thing or not, if, it, if it's going to work. Can you kind of, that, with that section, can you dive into what you mean there and how you know, like how does someone know if it's working or not and, and kind of what metrics to think about there? Yeah, so I, I think you, fundamentally you would be surprised by how much work you can do in a few months of focused work full-time. I think that um, I was more productive in my first week full-time on this than I was in the six months of work before because I was extremely focused. My time was, was you know, I, I spent all of my energy and used all of my relationship and all my resources to, to achieve that goal. And within a few months, we had customers, we had a working product, and, and we, had, we were getting feedback on it. And so... Um, so the first thing is that you would be surprised at how much you can accomplish when you apply yourself. And that's true for anyone. The second thing about how do you know it has legs first, like you won't know that it's going to be a billion dollar company in the first few months, but you'll know whether you're getting any kind of traction and, and depending on your business, it will be different things. So if you're a B2C business, it's going to be all about the, the number of daily average users you've got. Can you attract Five people, 10 people, 100 people. What does the curve look like? And, and it's completely reasonable to have a couple thousand people using your product if you hustle really hard on a B2C product. On a B2B product is, you know, can you get a couple companies to sign an LOI that says we want to use this, right? Like it doesn't bind them. It's not a contract. But to start, like an LOI is a really good sign that this has some legs. That's awesome. I, I love the tactical, the tactical tips. And the last question I have for you is, you, know, you are in the beginning stages of building what you hope to be, you know, a big company. And in the beginning stages is, you know, things are hard. And I think founders can oftentimes use as much help as they, as they can get. And what I've learned is I got an audience here that is listening, that wants to get involved in tech and wants to help. So I always ask this question now in, do you have an ask for the forward thinking founders community, whether it be getting on your platform, finding someone to hire or anything like that, what can the community do for you and how can we help? Yeah, two things. First, I want to meet your friends building hardware companies. You know, hardware companies um, are an extremely hard endeavor and the people who build them are extremely creative and resourceful. And every time I meet one of them, I learn a lot about how we can make our business better to serve them. So I want to meet your friends who build hardware companies. And the second thing is we're looking for first um, enterprise account executives. So if you have friends who are great salespeople, I want to talk to them. All right. I have a couple of uh, companies in mind as well, as you mentioned that. So I'll let you know after, after we stop recording. So thank you so much for coming on to the podcast. You are a wealth of knowledge and you have you just your experience speaks through how you communicate. So I just appreciate you coming on and sharing some of some of what you're working on with us. Thank you. Pleasure was mine, Matt. Thanks for having me.